Bad guys make mistakes too. The most successful ones. The ones you never hear about. The ones that go on for years and years. Are those who don't try and tackle heroes. Who spend their time instead preying on the weak. Welcome to Creepycast. My name is Pather O'Gillian. You can find me at pather.org, that is P-E-A-D-A-R dot org, sometimes called pedar.org. Although I'm probably best known for my 2016 book, The Call, a sort of YA horror, and its sequel, The Invasion, I have been writing for a very long time. Back in 2003, I wrote the story I'm going to read for you today, The Bag. It was one of the first stories I ever sold, and while the writing can be a bit ropey at times, I still really like... Well, I won't tell you what I really like about it. That would count as a spoiler. But I hope, whatever it is, that you like it too. The Bag The young man untied the strings of the bag. It shifted slightly in his hands. Gertrude took the rag doll from its rocking chair and squeezed it to her chest, her breath coming way too fast. She knew there was no point in prolonging the agony, especially at her age. But the fear was too much, and she blurted, I... I could pay more. His hands froze over the drawstrings, while the bag itself continued to stir. How much more? A a thousand? Next week? The bagman looked at her steadily. Gertrude could feel her armpits sticking to the cloth of her dress. The muscles in her legs twitched and she squeezed the doll ever more tightly to herself. He said, This is more of your delaying tactics. But he was already replacing the squirming bag into a large pocket on his coat. He smiled and she realised then he knew she didn't have the money but that he too preferred to wait enjoyed it even. He stood and took his hat. Until next week then, Mrs Q, he said. He was really quite handsome. He had pitch black hair and a neatly trimmed moustache. A nice boy, just doing his job. A job he happened to love. She rose to show him out, careful to stand on the side of him, furthest from the pocket which bulged. What's this? he said, standing at the door. He was fingering the mask Peter had brought back from India when they had first been married. Painted eyes, wide and staring. Angry mouth below. Gertrude had taken it out of the attic because she was thinking of selling it. It's a demon, she said. Or or maybe a king, I don't know. 
he took it from the wall and tried it on. Taking it off again, it caught in his hair and he had to tear it angrily from his head. He flung it to the ground and stamped on it. He glared at Gertrude. Then he reached out to a Waterford crystal vase and stalked from the house with it under his arm. Gertrude did not try to stop him, although she cried a little, thinking of what Peter would say if he were here. Twelve years without him. Twelve years with only a shrinking pension to pay the bills, so that now a perfect stranger could just walk out of her home with anything he fancied. It was an hour before her cat, Eunice, dared come out from the kitchen. The bag had that effect on the poor creature. She moulted terribly with every visit, whole clumps of fur coming loose. There, there, said her mistress. We have another week before he comes back. The cat looked at her as if to say she would never find the money in only seven days. And Gertrude had no answer to that. Eunice followed nervously all day long as Gertrude wheeled the doll about the house, talking to it. Peter had given her the toy to make up for an argument they'd had. She'll be our baby, he'd said, unaware there would never be another. He had made a good choice. Baby was a miniature version of her mammy, with big blue eyes and thick red curls. Except that Baby's hair had been cropped short, while Gertrude's, though still long, had since turned white. To a stranger, the doll's expression would have seemed unchanging. But Gertrude had become expert at reading it. Today it was saying, Do something. Don't just wait for him to come back. Do something. Gertrude was about to reply when a banging sound interrupted her. She limped quickly to the front door. The young man was hammering boards across the window of her sitting room. There you are, he said, before she could scamper off. I'm real sorry, missus, for my temper this morning. They work us hard, you see. I was fierce tired, so I was. As if to emphasise the point, he wiped a hand across his brow, pushing sodden hair away from his eyes. Any chance of a cup of tea there? Gertrude realised her mouth was hanging open. Why are you boarding up my house? She managed to say. He waved vaguely at the other side of the street, half hidden by mist. All the others are boarded. They couldn't pay either. She felt the beginnings of panic. The rest of Redmond Close had been empty for two years. Gertrude's neighbours had disappeared one by one during the recession as their debts had grown too large. Now their houses belonged to the bagman's bosses, just the one to complete the set, and they could begin redevelopment. But, but you said I had another week. Of course. 
He smiled handsomely, dimples appearing on either side of the moustache. It's a precaution until you can pay up. I take two sugars in my tea, Mrs. Q. You look like you could be doing with one yourself. He went back to hammering. He came in for a while to drink his tea, driving Eunice back to the kitchen. As he sat in front of the television, his phone rang. Of course you can have a loan, Mrs. Sullivan, Gertrude heard him say. She wanted to grab the phone from his hand and shout at the woman on the other end to find some other way of paying the mortgage. I'll be needing some security, continued the bagman. No, not your house, madam. I wouldn't dream of it. No. And Gertrude felt a familiar chill settling on her shoulders. All I need is a lock of hair from you and one from each of the members of your family. That's all the security we could want. Gertrude spent a frantic week trying to sell the furniture in the house. She rang people she had once known. She begged perfect strangers to take a sofa off her hands or a bed. Nobody was buying. She regretted now the loss of all her friends after Peter's death. She had turned strange, they told her. And she had. She knew she had. She was afraid to leave the house except for the briefest of shopping trips for bread or cat food. Eventually, people had stopped visiting. Even the bagmen hadn't started coming yet in those days. And in her innocence, she had thought that Peter's dying had somehow cancelled out the debt that she owed them. Then, one morning, the young man had turned up on her doorstep and demanded payment of interest on the loan. Ten years' worth of interest. Of course, Mrs. Q, he had said, gently squeezing her shoulder. If you can't get your hands on that kind of money, my employers would be willing to accept the deeds of your house in lieu of payment. Her face had dropped. Oh, don't worry, Mrs. Q. It's just temporary. It's just until you can make it up to us. So she had handed over the deeds. The following week, the young man had returned. He was looking for rent now. And it was high, roughly equivalent to her widow's allowance. She couldn't bear to leave her memories of Peter behind. So she paid it every week after that. And still, the original loan was outstanding, with interest due every month. She had ended up pawning most of Peter's prized possessions at ridiculous prices just to stay afloat. Now, she had nothing of value left to sell. The house had become a miserable place with all the windows covered. Every room smelled of must. Soon, it would be as empty as the rest of them. She tried to phone the police, of course. Everybody tried that sooner or later, on the reasonable grounds that loan sharking was illegal. The officers told her they didn't believe in bagmen, but there was a hint of fear in their voices when they said it. Policemen had families too, after all. 
Peter, had always refused to show his fear. She remembered how he had broken into the Murphy's house on the night following the last visit of the bagman there. The family had not tried to run off as some had before them. They knew there was no point. The bagman had locks of their hair after all. And once those locks had been dropped into the bag, it didn't matter if you ran south of the Liffey or as far as China. Peter had found nothing in the house except for five neat heaps of ash in the middle of the floor. Of the Murphys, there had been no sign. After six days, the young man returned for another visit. How is it going? he asked Gertrude with a ready smile. He looked around at the gaps in the room where there had once been pieces of furniture. He seemed disappointed. You have the money then? Some, said Gertrude, reaching for the comfort of her doll, baby. Some? His eyes glittered. I have sixty euros, so far that is. I have people interested in in things I keep in the attic. Sixty. Sixty euros. He shook his head. It was supposed to be a thousand. He reached into the pocket of his coat and withdrew the bag. It had swollen to the size of a man's head and it jerked spasmodically in his hands. He seemed short of breath and in the murky light of the table lamp he looked almost radiant. I don't think you're taking me seriously, Mrs. Q. He crouched down to examine the ground. Filthy creatures, he said, picking something up off the floor. It took Gertrude a moment to realise that it was a patch of Eunice's molted fur. But I still have another day, she shouted. You have indeed, Mrs. Q. He unlaced the strings of the bag, which seemed much more agitated than usual, heaving in his grasp. But I said nothing about the cat. He dropped the fur into the bag, which he then laid carefully on the carpet. The leather seemed to boil and then to change colour. No, it hadn't changed colour, It was that a grey, mostly transparent film had spilled over it, which now moved onto the floor like a tiny cloud. Gertrude stared, more in fascination than fear, for nobody could be afraid of a mere cloud. It contracted. Then it expanded and stretched before her eyes, like an animal in silent pain. A smell filled the room. Matches, thought Gertrude. It smells like matches. The cloud seemed somewhat disorientated. Rather than heading anywhere in particular, it first made a lazy circuit of the room. Then it turned quickly for the kitchen. Too late, 
Gertrude remembered that that was where Eunice hid during the bagman's visits. She dropped Baby onto the nearest chair and limped quickly after the cloud, unsure of what she would do if she caught up with it. It was moving towards the table at the far end of the kitchen. The cat was crouched under it in a pool of her own urine. Gertrude opened the utility cupboard in search of a weapon. Meanwhile, Eunice had snapped out of her terror and had begun running from one end of the room to the other while the cloud drifted after her. The animal reached the back door and started scratching furiously at the cat flap. But it had been nailed shut. And now the bagman entered the room. He was sweating heavily and seemed to find it difficult to stop grinning as Gertrude fumbled in the cupboard. Looking for something, he asked. But he made no attempt to interfere with her efforts. Gertrude ignored him because Eunice had begun emitting a high screech such as she had never heard from any cat she had ever owned. Something was burning. She dragged out the hoover, plugged it in and turned towards the cloud. She screamed at what she saw there. The cat was writhing against the door. Her fur seemed to be completely gone and most of her skin too. There was soot everywhere. Gertrude held down the bile that rose in her throat and turned the hoover's nozzle against the cloud. She was amazed to see how easily it was sucked in. The bagman was laughing to himself behind her. Now there's one I haven't seen before. It was too late anyway. Eunice was already dead. Gertrude collapsed to the floor beside her pet. The room seemed to be spinning around her and she'd been sick on herself. Her breath was coming in great gulps and her chest felt ready to explode. Darkness came. She awoke where she had fallen. The young man was crouched down beside her, holding a glass of water to her lips. She looked around. The vacuum cleaner had been melted to slag, and there was nothing left of poor Eunice but a pile of ash. Spontaneous feline combustion, said the man, delighted with his own humour. More seriously, he added, I thought we'd lost you, Mrs Q. You still have a whole day left. Twould be an awful shame to waste it now, wouldn't it? He stood up. A thousand euros tomorrow, Mrs Q. I look forward to it. Once he was gone, Gertrude whispered, My poor kitty, and began to cry. She went to Baby for comfort. The doll's expression told her to snap out of it, to do something. I can't. What was the use? 
one day to find more than 900 euros. No one was buying, and she had nothing left to sell anyway, except maybe the Indian mask. But the bagman had stamped on that when it had hurt him, and she doubted it would be worth more than a tenner now. Peter would have known what to do. He had always seemed so strong to her. He had never been handsome, not like the bagman was. His eyes were small and drab, stuck to his face under a single eyebrow that stretched from one end of his forehead to the other. He often joked that if you were to shave away the brown locks at his temples, you would find the same eyebrow underneath, marching right the way around his skull. No, he had never been pretty, but he had been strong, and he'd had courage enough for both of them. Peter had worked in journalism. He'd studied the bagman loan sharks more than anybody else, but had never been allowed to write about such superstitious nonsense, as they called it. Poor Peter, she said. He had told her that whatever lived in the bag was cunning. It rode the winds like a balloon, rising and falling in search of currents that would take it in the direction of its prey. Once it had your scent, it would follow you right around the world. The two of them had often sat up late into the night, discussing what they would do if a bagman ever came for them. That was before she was ever in their debt, of course. With Peter's salary, it had never been necessary to borrow from them. Ironically, his search for a scoop on these loan sharks was what had lost him his job and his self-respect. Then, on top of all that, his cancer diagnosis had come. The recession was biting hard, and they had desperately needed money to avoid destitution. So, the first bagman had come to visit, with a huge cheque and a pair of scissors to take a lock of hair. Peter had punched the man when the stranger had insisted on taking some of Gertrude's hair as well. The two of them had rolled together on the ground before she had finally stopped them. She apologised to the bagman, and she handed over a lock of red hair. He was fuming, but tried to pretend otherwise. He took the hair from her, grabbed back his scissors, and left. Gertrude and Peter held each other for a long time afterwards. Her husband had not been a handsome man but he was all she'd needed. You shouldn't have hit him, Gertrude had said. It doesn't matter. His voice had been utterly calm. As long as you did what I told you, Gertrude, everything will be all right. The next morning, she found his ashes in the kitchen. A cup of tea on the table was still warm. Gertrude felt overcome by her memories 
but Baby told her to snap out of it. Try, said the doll. Try for Peter. Try for Eunice. Nobody could resist a child. Gertrude hugged her protectively. The knock came two hours later than she had expected. If the bagman had wanted her to stew in her own juices, it had worked. Sweat had soaked its way into every fibre of her clothing, and she was worn out with nerves. The knock again. Coming, she managed to call. First, though, she dropped Baby into the downstairs bedroom. Goodbye, she said sadly, and kissed the doll on the forehead. Baby looked back at her as if puzzled. Only then did Gertrude make for the front door. Sunlight streamed into the house. The bagman was waiting for her on the step, looking very smart. He was wearing a new suit, and he carried a briefcase Gertrude had only seen on a few previous occasions. His other hand held the bag by its drawstrings. May I come in? She stood back. He stepped into the sitting room and installed himself on the one remaining chair. He opened the briefcase. The money? he asked. No, she said, wringing her hands. She wished she had baby to hold now, but that was impossible. His lower lip began to tremble. He reached into the suitcase and removed a small plastic container. There was a lock of hair inside. It was red, like hers used to be. Do you know what this is? Do you? she retorted, surprising herself. He grinned. With great slowness, he placed the bag in the middle of the floor and untied the drawstrings. Gertrude's heart pounded, but she managed to keep from panicking as the young man removed the hair with the tweezers and placed it into the mouth of the heaving bag. As on the previous day, the bag vomited a cloud into the air of the room, and the cloud, once free, circled the room, as if trying to orient itself. Gertrude stepped forward quickly and picked up the bag. The young man laughed delightedly. Again you amaze me, Mrs. Q, but whatever it is this time you're trying to do... Gertrude ignored him. She limped across the hall as quickly as she could go and into the downstairs bedroom. But now the cloud had worked out what it wanted and it began to follow. She locked the door and wedged a small wooden table against the handle. It won't do you any good, she heard. Sure enough, she noticed the air change colour slightly as the cloud passed under the door and into the room. The man wanted in too. Open up, you dried up cow. I can't see. What's the point if I can't see? 
He threw his shoulder against the wood as the cloud moved closer. So close, the stink of burning matches it gave off threatened to make Gertrude sick. It ignored her, of course. It made straight for the doll and began immediately to dissolve it, starting with its cropped red hair. Baby's expression was now one of betrayal. Long ago, Peter had told Gertrude, The doll's hair is made of natural fibres. It's probably just as delicious as yours to whatever lives in the bag. It had also been the same colour as Gertrude's own hair. That day, Peter had distracted the bagman by starting a fight and this had allowed her to substitute the doll's hair for her own. The cancer will get me anyway, Peter had told her. But now you've got the money. You can move away from here and there's no way that thing inside the bag will ever find you. But then... He had died, and somehow, she had never left. The door was beginning to splinter now under the constant assault of the bagman. He would break it down any second. No doubt he had some scissors with him in order to secure another sample of her hair. The cloud finally finished feeding on the natural fibres of which baby was made. It returned to the bag just as the door flew open, knocking the table to one side. The man was dishevelled and sweating after his exertions. He was probably shocked to see her still alive. Gertrude saw him look down at the object she held in her hands. It was the Indian mask. Her body shook all over as she lifted it up to show him where some of his hairs had caught when he had ripped it from his head. I never did get your name, she said. He could only gasp as she dropped his hairs into the hungry mouth of the bag. The End Who knows when people listen to these things, or if they listen to them at all. But right now, we're closing up on Halloween 2018. So, whenever you are listening to it, far, far in the future, or by some quirk of the space-time continuum in the past, I would like to wish you a happy Halloween. Whether you're living or dead, have a great one. Thanks for listening.